Yeah. Yep. That was depressing. Good morning. Today I have to talk about worldliness. So I'm going to lose half of you in the first five minutes. Worldliness is one of those worlds that nobody likes or everyone loves. The text that we're going to read, that we're going to read today is 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 12 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And the word of the Lord goes like this. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. There's two kinds of reactions when people hear the word worthliness. As the text shows it, is the way the text is, is explaining it is when it says, do not love the world. To be worldly is to love the world. So there's two kinds of reactions when people hear this. On one end, there's a group of people that whenever they hear the word uh, worldliness, it causes a certain level of disgust or makes them uncomfortable because it sounds as a legalistic word, as a religious word, as a highly outdated word, something that no longer applies to this modern culture, something that, it doesn't, that is not appealing Something that seems restrictive or out of touch with reality. That's one reaction to it. But there's another group, when they hear the word worldliness, they actually love it. They like it and they enjoy it because they can apply it to anything they want. They can apply it to the, to the things that they don't like. They can apply it to the things that they don't consider to be holy. They can apply it when people don't submit to traditions or customs. It makes them feel uncomfortable, but not, but not because they understand the concept of the word worldliness, but because they have created their own concept of the word worldliness. See, I think that both groups are wrong. The group that rejects the word uh, the word is wrong, and the, and the group that embraces the word in a different way is wrong. 
Therefore, I think that we need a better understanding of what we're talking about here. So I want to talk to you about what worldliness is not, what it doesn't mean. What worldliness means, or what it is, and how do we do to love the world and not love it? What is not, what it is, and how is it that we can love the world and not love it? So look at the first point. What worldliness is not. Uh, before we do that, can you do me a favor? Can you look at the person next to you and ask the question, do you know what worldliness is? Go ahead. Yeah, that was depressing as well. But let's keep on going here. <laughs> you guys are not good at that. That's all right. You guys are not Latinos. <laughs> Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's interesting because the word world is a word that John loves. And he uses it, he uses it all the time. If you look at the, of the Gospel of John or if you look at his letters, you're going to realize that he uses the word world about 80 times. And he uses it in both in a negative and in a positive way. The tendency is to see it only as a negative thing. But I want to tell you that when John thinks about the world, he does think about things that are negative, but most of the time, he thinks in a positive way. So for example, he describes the world as the object of God's affections. And you can see that in John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son for, the, for it. And then in John chapter 4, verse 22, he calls himself the savior of the world. John chapter 6, verse 33, he says that he came to give life to the world. Obviously, the word world there means people. God loves people, people that he created in his image, people that have value and dignity because they were created in his image. If that is true, then if you are a believer, you are called to love all people. People in general. If you're a believer, you have no permission to, know, to not love people in general. Notice that the Bible does not call you to love only Christians. Or to love the people that behave well. Or to love the people that don't struggle. The Bible calls us as Christians to love all people. People from different backgrounds and ethnicities. You know why? Because they're people. You have no permission for, to be a prejudice or to exercise discrimination, discrimination. You know why? Because those have to do with people. Let me make you uncomfortable a little bit, okay? Just a little bit. We ought to pursue racial equality. Do you know why? Because it's people. We ought to care for the afflicted and the poor and the immigrant and the stranger. And the one that is suffering, you know why? Because that's all people. We ought to pursue justice and just systems because justice has to do with people. 
We are called to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. You know why? Because that has to do with people. I want you to listen to this. We are called to value relationships above everything else. Above programs and above work and above systems. Because relationships have to do with people. That's the only reason why we evangelize, because we love people. That's the reason why we pray for all this, because we love people. When John uses the word world, he's talking about the object of God's affection, people. So the question for you is, do you love people in general that way? The second use that you see um, for the word world for John is when he describes this creation. He describes this creation as the revelation of God's wisdom, power, creativity, creativity, and magnificence. John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, describes the creation, describes Jesus as the agent through which the creation was made. Obviously, he's making a reference to Genesis chapter 1. And he's saying that creation is the handiwork of God. It's where we can see everything about his character. We can see his wisdom, power, creativity, and magnificence. There's a tendency to elevate the immaterial part of the world over the material part of the world. But that's not a biblical principle, you know? God cares about this material world. That's why Romans 8, for example, talks about the redemption of our bodies. Not just the redemption of your soul, the redemption of our bodies. It says that the whole creation is waiting for the restoration. God will come to restore and make everything new again, like 2 Peter says. Revelation 21 talks about the new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven to make all things new, and he describes us as a city. If that is true, and it is, then you and I, if you are a Christian, have a responsibility toward this creation. We ought to pursue the restoration of creation. We ought to care for the environment. That's the reason that as a church we talk about that, that our work matters. That's why arts matter. Because anything that we could do to contribute to what the Lord is doing in this creation, we ought to do. N.T. Wright, when he talks about this, he says that all Christians have a responsibility to pursue justice, to pursue beauty, and to pursue evangelism. Justice has to do with people, beauty has to do with people, and creation and evangelism has to do with people. This is our call. And this is how we ought to love this world. We ought to love people and we ought to love the creation and take care of this creation and contribute to this creation. For me, the first time I heard this, this was like 10 years ago. During my, my theological studies, when I, when I came to learn this and when I realized this, I, I, I finally realized that I have a theology that justifies why this creation matters. I finally have a theology that justifies why is it that we're here. 
And what's our call before a God Almighty and his creation and his people? That's how you ought to love this world. Do you love it that way? So John is not talking here about not loving people and not loving this creation. He's got to be talking about something else. And then this takes me to my second point. What does he mean when he says worldliness? And because he's a pastor, he knows that we can just create ideas and invent, invent things. So he wants to explain what worldliness looks like in verse 16 when he talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And the word lust, in my opinion, is not a really good translation. I think that a better translation is strong cravings or strong desires. Something that you want so much that it becomes a, an obsession or a fixation. It's something that usually it starts as a simple craving, and then it becomes a silent demand, and then it becomes a preoccupation, and eventually becomes an obsession to the point that it is no longer a want, but a need. I'm sure that you watched the movie The Lord of the Rings, right? It's a Christian movie. No, he's not. <laughs> but there's a character there that talks about my precious. That's the whole movie. This craving, this lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes is that, my precious. It's interesting because we are so quick to use the word need. Take my daughters to the mall. And they want shoes, and they don't say, Papi, can I have some shoes? No, they say, I need those shoes. <laughs> those are cravings. Those are desires out of control. Those are things that become obsessions. And it's interesting because he talks about the flesh, and he talks about the eyes, and he's talking about this combination of the things outside of us that are, that are tempting to us, but that are, that are tempting to us because it's already inside of us. Did you get that? No? Here you go again. <laughs> there are things outside of us that are tempting to us because there were, we already had something inside of us that made them tempting. Let me explain it to you. Um, I don't like sweets. I don't like cakes. I don't like candy. I don't like none of that stuff that you all love. <laughs> so if you want to tempt me, a cake won't do it. You could bring whatever sweets in front of me and you put it in front, that won't do it. But if you put salty stuff in front of me, oh, that's a different thing. So last week I'm having a conversation with my wife. And she had made this amazing rice and chicken and my daughter didn't finish her plate. I had already had like 20 plates. But there was leftover food in front of me, and my wife is telling me something that I'm sure it was really important. <laughs> but I, seriously, I can't concentrate because I'm thinking, leaving that food, there must be a sin. <laughs> Started thinking about kids in other parts of the world, you know. And I cannot say that it was the food alone what was tempting, but
But it was something inside of me that draw my attention to that plate. Therefore, you and I have no excuse to blame anybody for our struggles. You and I have no excuse to blame anything for, for our temptations. Because it's a combination between the things that you have inside and the things that you have that, and the things that are outside of you. And the Bible is full of examples like this. And you gotta think, for example, of King David. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And you know the story with his adulterous relationship. It all started with him looking at a beautiful woman from the distance while she was taking a bath. And the more he looked, the more he wanted. And the more he looked, the more he desired. And he went just from a craving uh, to a demand, to a preoccupation, to an obsession. And eventually, he brought the woman, slept with her, she was pregnant, and eventually he killed a man for her. And it's always this combination of the things outside of us and the things inside of us. The reason why we need to understand this, my brothers and sisters, is this. It is possible for us to come to church. It is possible for us to know the Bible. It is possible for us to memorize the Bible and to serve and to give. And yet be worldly. When you are used to submitting to your sinful cravings. It is possible for us to do everything right as Christians and be slaves to our cravings. So I wouldn't be so quick to call the people outside the church worldly. And John doesn't stop there. Because he's got one more sentence, the pride of life. And I believe this to be a very important phrase for us today. The word life there in the Bible is the same word that is used for possessions or achievements. And John is calling worldly people, the people that are proud about the things they have and the things they have achieved. Interesting because the word pride is the same word as boasting or bragging about something. And you have to keep that in mind because those things that you boast about those things reveal something from your heart. We always boast about two things. We boast about the things that we love, and we boast about the things that give us an identity. Isn't it true that you boast about the things you love? How many of you guys remember the first time that you got in love, that you were in love? Yeah? If your spouse is here and he's not that person, please don't raise your hand. <laughs> Rookie mistake. But if you're right, if, if you remember the first time that you felt love, didn't you brag about that? That's why there's people here walking around with a tattoo back here that says Rosa. <laughs> you get married years later and the wife is like, who's Rosa? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's my mom's middle name. <laughs> Jennifer Rosa. Didn't you brag about your kids when you first had them? Pictures and pictures and pictures of your kids. Because we brag about the things we love. 
And if you brag about your possessions and your achievements, that's your love. If you're afraid of going unnoticed, that's your love. And we also brag about the things that give us an identity. I find that so interesting because I think that that's one of the major issues in the, in the Christian church today, in general, in the United States. We could almost grab a Christian here and a, and, a, and a pagan here and put them together, and sometimes they don't look different at all. And I'm not talking about the way they look. I'm talking about their lifestyle and their values. C.J. Mahoney wrote a book on worldliness, and he says this. The greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Charles Spurgeon wrote 150 years ago this. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. It is possible for you to come to church and do everything right and be worldly because you boast in your possessions and your achievements, not in Jesus. And this is what we fail to see, that worldliness is extremely dangerous. And John gives us three reasons in the text why this is so dangerous. He tells us first that, he's, that a worldly person cannot, cannot really love God and enjoy his love. And I get that from verse 15. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. The ESV translates this, the love of the Father is not in them. And the reason why they have different translations is because that phrase means both things. Worldliness keeps you from loving God the way you're supposed to and keeps you from enjoying God's love over you. The second danger is because it makes you someone that is addicted to things that will never satisfy. That's why in verse 17 talks about the world is passing away along with its desires. You know what it is to pursue and to chase things that never satisfied? It's like walking in a treadmill. You never go anywhere. And yet, you keep on walking. And lastly, it is dangerous because eventually it takes you away from God. Listen to this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. And this is Paul talking about one of his companions. Someone that preached the gospel with him. Someone that suffered for the gospel. And because of his love for this world, he abandoned his Savior. 
That's what worldliness is. We are called to love the world, to love people and to love this creation and work in it. We are called to not be worldly, to not follow the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the pride of life. The question is, is it possible, is it possible for us to love this world right and not love it? Is it possible for us to live here and love people right and creation right and not love the system or the values of the world? Can we do it? And I would say yes. If you have the gospel. I would say yes if you understand, it, if you understand what Jesus did for you and what Jesus earned for you. When you look at the cross and you think of the cross, you cannot just think about one thing. You always got to keep them together. What Jesus earned for you and what Jesus gives you. And this is where verses 12 to 14 come in when John is talking to Christians as children. Children of God. And he says that within this group of Christians, there's two types of Christians. The fathers, which it will be the mature Christians. And the young men, which is the younger Christians, new believers. So someone would say that if you are somewhere between day one and year 10 of your Christianity, you're a young Christian. And anything after 10, you're a grandpa. But this is what is interesting, though. That he tells this group of Christians, whether you're old or you're young, whether you're a father or a young man, he tells Christians that the only way we can live in this world without loving the world wrong and loving it right is when we remember three things and we embrace three things and we believe three things. Number one, that in Jesus your sins have been forgiven. That's what verse 12 says. And if your sins have been forgiven, it means that you have been accepted. And if you have been accepted, then you have the freedom from the pride of life. There's nothing for you to prove. There's no defeated Christianity. You are free to love right. The second thing that he tells us is that in Jesus, you have overcome the evil one. And that appears in verses 13 and 14. It means that when Jesus died and resurrected, not only he defeated the devil, but he defeated the power of sin in your heart. Therefore, by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you, you can say no to your sin. You could say no to your cravings, you know. There's no defeated Christianity. You're free to say no if you're a Christian, if you're truly a Christian. And number three, it tells us that in Jesus you have been adopted. That's why he calls these people Christ children. And that's why in verse 14 says, you know the Father. And for me, the concept of adoption changes everything. Because Jesus not only forgives your sins, and Jesus not only gives you freedom from the devil and from the power of sin, but he gives you a new identity, a new status. Let, let me explain it this way. This young woman goes to a counselor, 
And she says, I'm having a hard time seeing God as a father. I'm having a hard time seeing God as a father because my dad was awful to me. And she recalls this experience that she's been carrying around for years. Because the relationship was so broken with her father, one day she decides to do something nice for him. And she grabs this white shirt from work, and she decides to wash it. And this girl is maybe like five to seven years old. And she decides to wash it, and because she lives in this area where there's no dry machines or anything like that, she has to go outside and hang this shirt so it all dry up before daddy gets home. But as she goes out, the line is so high above that she can reach it. So she drags an old wheelbarrow next to the line, and she puts this white, clean shirt on top of that dirty wheelbarrow. And she didn't realize it. Being a young girl, she gets up, and then she hangs this shirt and walks away, happy, thinking that she's doing something amazing for her dad. When her dad gets home, she, she runs out to him and says, Daddy, I have a surprise for you. And she brings the shirt. And this guy responds crazy. How could you do this? This is my work shirt. And then she says, so when I think of God as a father, that's what I think. It is never enough. So the counselor looks at her and says, if Jesus was your father and you did that for him, what, what do you think Jesus would do? And she says, well, I, I think that Jesus would, would say thank you. And I think that he would ignore how dirty the shirt was. That's forgiveness. And she said, you don't get it. You don't get it yet. Because if Jesus was your dad, he would grab that shirt and he would put it on. And he would go to work and he would wear it and show it to everyone. And he will boast about you and how much you love him. And he will boast how much he loves you. And he will not be ashamed of anything that you've done. Because that's what a father would do for his child. That's you if you have been adopted. There's your identity, there's your security, there's your significance. That's your status. Children of the living God. Not just forgiven. Not just given a supernatural power to say no to sin. But a child of God. And when you have a love like that, you can look at the world and love it right. And you can look at the world and say no to the things that you need to say no. Do you have that? Do you crave that? That's what I want for me.
And that's what I want for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, my prayer is simple today. Please feel our affections with the cross of Christ. Until there is no more room for our sin. Please, Lord Jesus, feel our affections with the cross. Until there is no more room for sin. So we could love this world. So we could love people and we love this creation. While at the same time, we don't surrender to our sinful cravings and the pride of life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Church.